Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. In our final session, we consider Christ the Logos and his verbatim word as the prescription for keeping postmodernism in remission until his second arrival. The Logos, that is, Christ himself, in his own words, the Bible, is authoritative for both church and government, as we will see both biblically and philosophically. What is Jesus' prescription for keeping postmodernism in remission? In what way is the word authoritative for both church and state? Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. We've recently had the privilege of sitting at the feet of Reverend Dr. Gregory Schultz at the Wittenberg Academy Family Retreat. For episode 53 of the Wittenberg Hour, please enjoy Plenary Session 4 from Dr. Schultz. So in our, in our fourth part, here's what we have done so far. In session one, we were met by Christ the Logos. So the Logos incarnate. The Logos became flesh and tabernacle for a while among us. And along with the apostles, now we have seen his glory. In the second session, you may remember that we went from Christ the Logos to us as the Logos species, or, as Athanasius said it, the Logikos individuals. Right? In the third session, yesterday, we saw what I would identify as the major attack that's been going on for a while on the Logos, which is postmodernism, uh, the relativism that has always been there, but is especially nefarious right now because it's hitting us in a horribly uh, immunity weakened spot in Western culture, perhaps in our lives too. And then today, I'd like to give uh, at least one concrete example of how to combat postmodern relativism, this time uh, just taking on the nonsense that comes from the postmod thinker Derrida on marriage, and uh, holding that in stark contrast to the brilliance of the longest scripture there. First though, an excursus, you know what that is? That, that's when the teacher goes off topic, actually. But we cover that up by saying that it is a planned detour. Um, and it also sounds so much better in Latin, right? Rather than something possibly irrelevant, uh, ex curses, sounds more respectful. So I'd like to say this. I'm about to talk about Derrida, who, as I snarkily mentioned a couple of times, is a French philosopher. Uh, and it occurred to me, in, in trying to fine-tune things for you folks this week, that uh, one important thing to say would be, well, for goodness sakes, why is he telling us how to think about marriage in the United States? What, is, what does Derrida know, not only about the Bible, which would be but what does he know about the way things are set up in the United States? He's got no business advising people outside of France, I think, on what he marriage should be. So I, I thought I'd just offer you this. This is also a bit of a hint as to some of the other uh, materials I've been producing that you may be interested in. So I'm talking about the American scriptures for a couple of minutes, okay? The sacrosanct texts and their authority. Sacrosanct texts are the American scriptures and the sacred scriptures. 
If you think I'm just doing something metaphorical or a little bit vaguely patriotic or vaguely Christian, oh no, let me explain this. The American scriptures, such as the Declaration and Constitution, are based on the foundation of the sacred Hebrew and Greek scriptures. They are normative. Now, this is a heavy duty vocabulary we use to talk about the relationship of our confessions, including the ecumenical creeds and everything, to the scriptures. So the way uh, we pastors talk about that pretty often is we talk about the scriptures as being normative, and then we talk about the confessions as being the normed norms. So scripture is, of course, the ultimate thing. But because, not to the degree of the but because our confessions, our Lutheran confessions, are all tapped into particular Holy Scripture, that means that that normative standard carries over between the scriptural basis. Normativity is, I, I'm going to predict, uh, an extra important term that we are going to have to introduce into the conversation in our education, in our community relations, and the preaching really quick. So normativity is a heavy-duty ethical term, as a matter of fact. If we're talking about ethics, if we're talking about ethics at all in a Western sense, there's got, got to be some sort of conversation there about what the norm or the standard is, which is universal for all people, you see, believer, non-believer, Greek, and barbarian, and so forth. This ultimately traces back to, guess what, Jesus in Matthew 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. If I may paraphrase, and it's not much of a paraphrase, it's pretty close to a translation. All normativity has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So this is, this is a key item. Number three, ideology, that is the lies people live by, it's especially the uh, Marxist and neo-Marxist ideas people live by, is that which is not based on sacrosanct texts. Ideology is arbitrary and made up. See, for example, uh, Marx's Communist Manifesto, or his ideology of the German. And therefore, live not by lies means do not live by ideology. Here's a fundamental insight. Uh, this line from Kurt Marquardt is, I think, pure gold. Uh, here's the line, and I'll explain briefly why it's so big. Science, he wrote in Anatomy of Explosion, has neither use nor room for privileged authorities or sacrosanct texts. It recognizes only observations, experiments, logical inferences based on them, and reluctantly, whatever axioms or assumptions are necessary to sustain these operations. Now first, I just, I just want to express uh, my gratitude to the Lord for Professor Marquardt's work. You know, that, that we should have had somebody who was so clear in his analysis and so Christ-centered in his way of putting this, why it would be enough to make you want to become an LCMS pastor. Um, also, I, I would point out that we should probably lobby and maybe march on Concordia Publishing House so that Anatomy of Explosion remains in print. This book is, is perennially important. If it wasn't important just then, we need to maintain a continuing vigilance on these very issues. And, as, as Professor Marquardt put it absolutely brilliantly, the problem with using science for your biblical interpretation is that science as a method, science per se, has no room for sacred text. I mean, 
think about, well, you know, will I have any Fauci coming across this stuff? The last thing that you're ever going to hear from him, you, I check up with it, you'll never, ever hear this from him, is any quote from the Declaration of the Constitution, much less something from Scripture. So there's no normativity there. You see, it's a bluff. It's scientism looking to science for salvation rather than looking to the sacrosanct text. Now, I'm using sacrosanct in a deliberate way of connecting the American scriptures, as I described them, which are not salvific. I, I know that. So but the American scriptures carry some of this normativity from God, you see. Okay, so uh, this is my paraphrase then. For this. this is my paraphrase of Professor Marco. Marxism has neither use nor room for privileged authorities or sacrosanct text. I teach Marx. Uh, and I, I think the simplest thing to do here is keep your Bible open and then, as I said, take a look at the Communist Manifesto. And you'll see it's all mythological. It's all made up. It's mythological violence. It's setting up class warfare as a means to, well, I don't think Marx is justified in saying that. And that the communism is just violence for the sake of violence, to upset things, to, to hurt people, for somebody to, to take opportunistic advantage of that. Right? Okay. Sacrosanct. I, I just put up the definition for you to practice first act of mind first. But also to say there are two meanings, and I'd like you to watch both of those. Sacrosanct means regarded as sacred and inviolable, that's the basic sense. You're not talking about sacrosanct you don't catch that. You hear the normativity in that? But preeminently or superlatively sacred or inviolable. Uh, recently, I think it was Congressman Jordan asked Anthony Fauci, how can you be prescribing all of this stuff when the Constitution says that we have guaranteed liberties that are not to be overcome? Fauci lamely replied, well, I'm more concerned with life and death. And the congressman said, well, what about the Declaration and the Constitution? I thought she had no answer to that. Okay. So this is the hermeneutic circle. Do you, do you use this in your um, educating? You're learning? Familiar with this? I'm not really geared up to talk with this for a long period this morning because I've got some more to provide for you. But the hermeneutic circle, uh, hermeneutic as in interpreting text. Hermes, the, the Greek god of communication, is kind of there in that word. Uh, initially, hermeneutics was something up till you know, not, not too long ago, 19th century, was exclusively the domain of theology and biblical interpretation. You recognize that the way I describe this. Uh, but it has been used more broadly for any, any other text at all. So here's the deal. It's a two-position happening, a, a two-movement or two-moment Thing. If you look at the bottom, bless you, we, a lot, we, we start off with our own opinions or worldviews or thoughts, right? So here we are thinking, having our thoughts. And then we come in contact with, I'll say, the sacrosanct text, the Bible preeminently, right? And what, or you might better say, the text comes in contact with us, right? So what happens there is there is a resistance. So the text is outside of us. It is, as Luther famously said about God's word, it is extra nos. It is 
outsiders, it doesn't come from our own inventions or our own imaginations. It's God's revelation to us. So the text provides this resistance. It's not necessarily saying what we want him to say. The text is not just uh, amplifying our own opinions or, or dogmatic uh, holdings of things. Instead, it provides resistance. And then it works this way. The biblical text is the means by which God works on our heart, soul, and mind. He works on our will and our emotions and our thinking together and changes that. And then the cycle continues, right? Now our thinking is better formed and informed by God's word, for instance, and it continues. Now the thing is, though, that the normativity is represented by my little triangle on the top. In the case of Scripture, God is the norm, the authority that lights up and informs that text working on us. You can say in a lesser and a derivative way that the Declaration of Independence does that same thing because it's actually linked in verbatim to the Creator God of, of the Scriptures. Here's Lincoln. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. That's actually the part I need, but I think I better read the rest of this too or recite it with you because this is at least as relevant now as it was back in 1863. Now we are engaged in a great civil war. I suppose a cold civil war now. Testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. Dedicated to the proposition the proposition that all men are created equal. This is what exposes the lie of the Marxist ideology for the lie that it is. Uh, contrary to the 1619 curriculum, uh, contrary to just about every message that we're receiving from the current administration and more, this country is not a racist country. Even if it were, the important thing to say here would be but we have a resource which is truly something that makes America exceptional. This is the real meaning of American exceptionalism. It's not that we are more wonderful people. Goodness knows, right? It's not that we're more wonderful people. It's that we have this sacrosanct proposition, by the way, this is the second act of the line now, to declare the fact, to judge true and to explain very well. So what is that proposition? Here it is. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is not subject to deconstruction in the way that we're going to hear David Dodd does this thing. There, there is no allowance here for Jefferson's state of mind or even his faith. The text is the text is the text. This is what was authorized, signed, sealed, and delivered by the 1776 Congress, right? Now, a couple of words on this. Uh, I'm going <coughs> to explain that actually there is another requirement for something to be self-evident to us, and it happens to be the work that you and I do in our preaching and teaching, whether it's in our families or in a more formal setting. And, I want you to keep an eye on the normativity in here. 
this is not just religious people offering some opinions and some folks may or may not find helpful. We're, we're talking about ultimate authority. We hold these truths to be self-evident. This is Thomas Aquinas, his Summa Theologiae. He's talking actually about Anselm's argument here, but that's a big discussion. So uh, he's saying, as part of his uh, summer style response, a thing can be self evident in either of two ways. On the one hand, self evident in itself, though not to us. On the other, self evident in itself and to us. This is bigger than it sounds at first. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested to make this application to the text of the Sacrosanct Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident. So my question is, uh, okay, you've got to grant that it is self-evident. That's what the text is saying. That's the proposition that Lincoln laid out his life for, and about 600,000 other Americans did too. Uh, but it's self-evident. The question is, is it self-evident also to us? So here's a quick example. It's important, and I don't mean to, to go back to the scripture, though I, I might say, um, where's Tyler sitting? I, I might say that you have just sped up my idea of how I can pray the Psalms in the morning. <laughs> I mean, with that case you set for us, for goodness sakes, um, this is lively and wonderful, so I could probably do twice as many Psalms in the morning now. I just probably your pattern. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, too fast, but it's not as fast as Tyler's food. A little fast. <laughs> so I'm going to declare the glory of God. Psalm 19. Um, Think of it as the precy or the summary of Psalm 119, which is really what we should be talking about. The heavens declare the glory of God in the sky, displays what his hands have made. One day tells a story to the next. One night shares knowledge with the next. Without talking, without words, without their voices being heard. the glory of God. True. The skies, terrible stuff. True. Is this self-evident to everybody? It should be, but it's not. Why not? Because you need the Bible to point out what is self-evident. Uh, I, I, I just offered the thought here that what we usually refer to as natural law is, in my view, way too heavy and optimistic in terms of content. I don't think there's that much there in natural law, quite frankly. Certainly, all the words of the Bible are not inscribed in our heart apart from God's Bible, and the Holy Ghost inscribed in our heart. So, what I, what I want to say is these are true, self evident realities on the left, the first part of Psalm 19. But the only way we know that it's self evident is explained in verses 4 and 5. Yet their sound has gone out into the entire world, their message to the ends of the earth. And then, do you remember feeling this? Oh, right about that point, it sounds like Psalm 19 is becoming a whole different topic. Right? So first it's the, the heavens, and then all of a sudden it's the Word of God. But this is the connection. The teachings of the Lord are perfect. They read of the soul. The testimony of the Lord is dependable. It makes gullible people wise. The instructions of the Lord are correct. They make the heart rejoice. May the words from my mouth and the thoughts from my heart be acceptable to you. O Lord, my rock, and my defender. This is what Aquinas was bringing to light for us. The proposition that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator of rights. 
This is a self-evident truth, but it is not self-evident if you're not educated in the Word, the Logos of God. Right? So, they're done by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Travel like Chesterton right about now. Abolish the God, means the true God, and the government becomes the God. Reminder about Matthew 28, and then, of course, our dear Luther. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your de facto Savior. Right? Uh, just a little bit more. That among these are life. I love this quote from Bonhoeffer. I, I love it for the work that I do. I love it for the perspective that it brings. And here in our Logos discussion, you have to love it for the way that it illuminates the ever-present reality of Christ in our Logos-like being. My life is outside myself. That's that word Zoe, by the way. I mean, that's what you're talking about. Beyond my disposal, Bonhoeffer says, I am the life, John 14. This is the word, the Logos, the revelation, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The statement that our life is outside ourselves and in Jesus Christ is in no way the result of our own self-understanding. It should be self-evident. It is self-evident, but we don't know that it's self-evident apart from Christ himself revealing it to us. Instead, it is a claim that encounters us from outside, outside, which we either believe or contradict. Uh, by the way, can't hope that no, the transgressions against the inalienable creator-given rights of human embryos and illegal immigrants in keeping with the Marxist ideology or postmodernism, but in defiance of the proposition that we're witnessing today. Just about there, this small detour. This is Oswald Bayer. If the sun sets you free, he reminds us, you really will be free. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are seeking to kill me, because my word has no place in you. By the way, isn't that just really with an extra chill up and down your spine? It's, it's a little bit like hearing Jesus talking with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, um, who says, um, uh, uh, when they talk about on this mountain, no one will worship the Father, and then you think about how there were Bible translations trying to get rid of the word Father. Realize there's kind of a little echo or big echo of that there. And here, right, you're trying to kill me. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you have done unto me. Right? Isn't that the real agenda? I speak of the things which I have seen with my father, therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Bayer's words. For human action does not start with itself, it draws its life from freedom that has already been given. I talked about language being a given. This is that same kind of philosophical line of thought. Freedom is a given. It's not something we earn. It's actually a kind of a by grace alone thing. But it's already been given in Christ. This is the point. As, as the Declaration kind of invites us to have to read and think and talk about it. Um, but how has this freedom been given? Does it come from nature? Or is it the result of a particular promise? Jesus Christ is heard and tasted by our senses concretely and an indissoluble linking of the occasion and the word, the word and the body that emerges.
emerges with particular clarity in the Lord's Supper. You suppose you can understand the Declaration of Independence if you don't understand the real presence of the Lord's Supper. Then among these are the pursuit of happiness. A quick mention from Augustine, I'm not going to elaborate on this, but it's quite wonderful. There's no reason for a person to be pursuing philosophy, which means studying anything seriously in his day, unless it's because he or she is working toward unending beatific happiness. All right, so this is the end of the exercise. Which looks like a way too long introduction to the sermon. I, I know that none of my brother colleagues here today have ever done that. I that subject because I think it was too long intros. I just did it All right, so here we go. Logos, and now we're dealing with Derrida's attack on Logos in the particular case of his dismissal of the divine institution of marriage. So just a reminder about Derrida's fundamental project. He wanted to, and he still does in Hades, I don't know, but he wanted to disengage Christ the Logos from Western culture. And I had recommended to you that, um, first of all, there's no good reason to do that, actually. Part of my uh, concluding main section here is actually to ask, so, so if you deconstruct marriage, where does that get us? And again, I think you should compel people to see their philosophical commitments through. You know, you're going to say that language is meaningless. Why should I listen to you? Uh, quip online, pretty close to a meme, sort of. Uh, this was about David Dunn, by the way. Believes that language is meaningless. Has written scores of books to prove it. <laughs> I, I think this is called for. I'm stepping outside. We could have just got a cold So, anyhow, getting rid of Christ the Logos is certainly central to his project. And, as I've suggested, you also lose all, all reason and human rationality because the Greek forms of thinking have been used with our, our great conversation over the divine scriptures. And we get rid of the baby and the bad ones, and we actually roll them together. Postmodernist deconstruction of marriage. All right, so this is about David Dow. This is from the last interview before his death. A fascinating thing. The person who interviewed him for Le Mans, the world, this Paris journal or a magazine newspaper, uh, was extraordinarily well prepared and also did something. A couple of us have talked a little bit about the interviews we've given over the past where people just manhandle our wording in the interview, you know, make it seem the opposite of what we said, think about that 60 minutes thing. Lord, uh, uh, but this particular interviewer did this. She interviewed David Dodd, including a question about marriage, which we're going to look at, and then wrote the interview and sent it to David Dodd and said, did I get it right? And he, he wrote back and he said, yeah, that's exactly what I meant in what I said. So this is, uh, this is more than just what we think of today as a interview or something. This is a, an actual vetted interview. Anyhow, uh, so this is what uh, David has said, that we should replace the institution of marriage with a contractual civil union, one that has been improved, refined, and would remain flexible and adaptable to partners whose sex and number would not be prescribed. I know. 
Whereas, according to Derrida, the concept of marriage is religious and therefore ought not to be a part of the secular constitution. Such a flexible civil contract, as he recommended, Here's my argument. While Derrida's so-called deconstruction of marriage does perhaps make a gesture toward the textual basis of our concept of sexual unions in Western culture, his proposal is not philosophically coherent. I'd like you to know what nasty words those are for me. If, <laughs> if, if you're at a philosophy conference or you're talking with a philosophy professor about the, the most insulting thing you can say is, your presentation was not <laughs> so this is this is from the philosopher's official book of insults. But it's also true. I mean, we don't generally we don't use these insults just to insult the culprit. So, so uh, furthermore, David has deconstruction is actually not philosophical deconstruction. All right. So this methodological ins insistence on infinite deferral and play. We heard that in the interview I cited yesterday. Regarding the texts which inform or used to inform the concept of marriage in Western culture, does, on the one hand, exhibit an antipathy, fancy word for utter hatred, toward the foundational texts of the Judeo Christian scriptures regarding marriage. So I, I am leaving the excursus, but they didn't get away with this in France, but you shouldn't be able to get away with this in the United States. You know, I mean, we're, we're made of stiffer stuff. We've got a proposition, you see. You can't dally around with things that are going to affect people's freedom or, or happiness or their right to life. Okay. On the other hand, it provides us with nothing constructive or even ethically interesting reader. That was another insult. So I'd like to mention that in, in the uh, slide presentation, I have uh, done my due diligence and presented a philosophical argument analysis. This is the first part of it. Roughly speaking, he has undertaken deconstruction, which in, in his hands is a method that assumes a postmodernist position, so it's question-begging. So it's fundamentally flawed from the get-go. Here's what I mean. Um, deconstruction. I learned deconstruction from the German philosophers. Derrida is using the same terminology, deconstruction, but he has made a new, lesser thing out of it. I can also report to you that uh, Derrida tried to gesture toward one of the German philosophers I specialize in, Mark Heidegger, and, and say, you know, I'm kind of like him, and uh, Heidegger said, absolutely not. Here's one of the reasons. Deconstruction in the way that I learned it and the way it's taught in German philosophy is, in, in vivid terms, it's a way of getting rid of the barnacles that are attached to important texts. So deconstruction needs to get rid of all of the added on stuff, theorizing what uh, people in the social science, sciences like to call lenses through which we look at things and all of that, to get all that, and just leave it with the person and the text. You see, read the text. That's what deconstruction really is. So I'd like to say it's a good thing. I, uh, George Steiner has done this. He suggested in, in a uh, recent book of his called Real Presences that what we really should do in academia 
is knock it off with the secondary sources. So if you're you know if you're going to engage with the text, you engage with that text. I hold that I hold the professional view, not too many people are interested in that. But I hold the professional view that we should never bother with secondary texts at the undergraduate level. I think it should just all be primary texts. Uh, anyhow, that's basically what deconstruction is about. Get to the text. So when Derrida is talking about texts having infinite play and I can do whatever I want with it and so forth, he's not actually talking deconstruction, or rather he's letting us know that his deconstruction is total destruction. That's actually what he's not doing. And which I take issue with for a number of reasons. Begging the question, by the way, he's assuming that he's right, that, that language is meaningless, and he's just going, going to work on that basis. That is the true sense of um, arguing in a circle. That's, that's the true instance of question making. If you assume a worldview and use that worldview without letting on that you're using it or being willing to discuss and defend it, it's making a worldview of presupposition. It's not strictly just arguing uh, in terms of your conclusion all mixed up with your interests. Alright, so David does practice of deconstruction as a method that rules faith in the Messiah out of bounds and is thus in methodological opposition to the normative texts of religious Jews and biblical Christians alike. Also, American thinking, at least the way Lincoln represents it. More to come. Okay, so here's, here's his uh, slightly extended quote. If I were a legislator, I would simply propose the abolition of both the word and the concept of marriage in the civil and secular code. Marriage, religious, sacral, heterosexual value, with its procreative intent, or eternal fidelity, etc. You can almost hear his sarcasm. Is the state's concession to the Christian church, particularly in its monogamous dimensions, which is neither Jewish, this was imposed on Jews by Europeans only in the last century, and among North African Jews was not an obligation as recently as a few generations ago, nor Muslim, as is well known. Well, let's just clear the decks on Monday. They were just absolutely factually incorrect in just about everything that he's saying in the last part of this paragraph, right? I mean, that you realize historically that that's simply wrong. Um, first of all, the Jewish ideas of marriage we can just think very easily back to the engagement and marriage of Joseph and Mary in Matthew. We know that this is not something recently made up. I think this big question, um, though this is not an area I'm really well at home with, uh, I, I think it's a big question whether Western marriage has much to do with Muslim uh, at all, actually. And uh, Europeans imposing this on people? Well, no. What he is correct about <laughs> is that marriage was instituted by God, and we know that through the normative scriptures. So marriage is, is a religious institution. The bugaboo in the whole business is that David thinks you should never have religious stuff, and of course he's really talking to the christian scriptures, you should never have religious stuff in culture. Why? Because he wants to get the logos out of Western culture. Why? Because he wants to, that's why. But there's, there's no good salutary reason, there's no end game in like just hates Christ and 
to get mitochondria. Just a little bit more that we can discuss. So he wants to put in, in its place of, of the institution that he doesn't understand. He wants to replace that with a contractual civil union, a kind of generalized, improved, flexible pact between partners without limitation to gender or number. And then he's got some uh, pablum about you go ahead and have marriage if you want to. Yes, it should be marriage. Okay. Uh, here's, here's what I would like to say. All that work to get rid of the logos and to get the normative, biblical institution of marriage out of the sea. And this is all you can come up with. I mean, really, I, I do not, I want to preface this by saying, I do not want to insult any of the uh, teenage guys here with us today. But this sounds like kind of a poor version of an adolescent comic book view of marriage. Right? It takes, it takes all the good stuff out of it. This is not deconstruction, this is destruction. This is the nuclear option. This is China when it comes to, to look at things in the West. Um, and I actually, uh, you might guess I'm, I'm not anything of a big scholar. But I have taken the opportunity to talk with a, uh, a genuine theoretical scholar who was several years ago over at Marquette, uh, my alma mater for philosophy, and uh, presenting something. And I said, well, I, you know, in the after question, I said, I just I have to ask you this. I said, I'm going to say that Derrida's proposed notion of marriage, just the word is is dogmatic. To you, that sounds like a big word, and it is. We talk about our systematic theologies, our dog classes, or dogmatic classes, etc. But outside of seminary, dogmatic means opinionated with nothing in the gas tank. You see? It's just your mere opinion. You just keep saying it, you can't say anything else. And so I said to this Derrida uh, scholar, who is French, by the way, I said, I said to him, I think that that Derrida's prescription for this new marriage is pure dogmatism. There's no philosophy or ethics or thought in there at all. And I paused for it. I was no fun. It was about 30 seconds. And finally he said, well, I think I, I'm going to have to grant that you're right. Wow. Yeah. See? So it is. But on the postmodern thing, it's a little bit like Nietzsche's death of God. If you're willing to accept God being disappeared from Western culture. Somebody's going to have to sweep in, like those Hebrew mentioned, right? Somebody's going to have to sweep in and at least give us some sort of made up mythological meaning to, to get us out of bed in the morning and help us keep going during the day. That's all this is. But it's not, not even that somehow. Yeah. So, now, by contrast, the scriptures. Maybe this is also a case of things are self-evident. I mean, they really are. We are a dimorphic species. Male and female create God's image. There's no third sex. There's, there's no contemplation of anything other than being male and female. Right? Self-evident. But the question is whether it is self-evident also to us today. And to the degree that you buy into Postmodern and Marxist lie, to that degree it becomes opaque. Except you like to think, wouldn't you, 
uh, something like this. So keep an eye on those Bible passages. I know you guys can recite those with me too. So think about this. Get us if if we were to sit down and have kind of a summit conference about what marriage should be like in our society and our culture, what are the things that uh, the, the brightest and most thoughtful, the wisest people among us would be talking about? Well, marriage would need to be a place that that has to do with love in a very serious way, right? So uh, it should be love in, in the sense of commitment. It should be love based on the reality of our being male and female. So it should be lifelong, one man, one woman. Right? It should be marriage should be a place where the great experience of love can be long term and where it will involve forgiving and, and growing in love. And this would be the ideal situation into which to bring children. Right? Where they'll have Father who brings what only a father can bring for the lifetime of that child. Right? And a mother who brings what only a mother can bring for the lifetime of that child. And then if, if we could possibly justify this, we would need to find some way to say that marriage actually transcends the glories of our individual marriages in our society. So that it, it actually shows something about the reality of existence of, of the whole cosmos, of the meaning of everything. Now, if we were to do that, we would at best come close to the description of the biblical, the biblical description of the institution of marriage in Scripture. I mean, just consider. I'll give you a passage from Ephesians 5. So I'm going to go ahead and back up for a couple couple of passages from Ephesians 4 because I think it fits the entire context of not paying attention to marriage and then we've got God's word on here. So in Ephesians 4, I'm reading from the Jerusalem translation. Uh, St. Paul says this right about 4.17. In particular, I want to urge you in the name of the Lord, or both of us, not to go on living the aimless kind of life that pagans live. Intellectually, they are in the dark. And they are estranged from the life of God without knowledge because they have shut their hearts to it. Actually, that's, it is self-evident, but it's not self-evident to us because, like Romans 1, we don't want it to be self-evident to us. Their sense of right and wrong once dulled, they have abandoned themselves to sexuality and eagerly pursue a career of indecency of every kind. Now that is hardly the way you have learned from Christ, unless you failed to hear him properly when you were taught what the truth is in Jesus. You must give up your old way of life. You must put aside your old self, which gets corrupted by following illusory desires. Your mind must be renewed by a spiritual revolution, so that you can put on to the new self that has been created in God's way, in the goodness and holiness of the truth. So from now on, there must be no more lies. It's a good sound. Yes. Uh, and then in chapter 5, try then to imitate God as children of his that he loves and follow Christ by loving as he loved you, giving himself up in our place as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. 
that's the section where among you there must not even be a tongue. Those sins that by malice of fortified keep us away from the kingdom of God. Then um, the familiar, not familiar, not the marriage section. Give way to one another in obedience to Christ. Wives should regard their husbands as they regard the Lord, since as Christ is the head of the church and saves the whole body, so is a husband the head of his wife. And as the church submits to Christ, so should wives submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands should love their wives just as Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself for her to make her own. He made her clean by washing her in water with the form of words, baptismal formula, so that when he took her to himself, she would be glorious with no speck or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and faultless. In the same way, husbands must love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man to love his wife is for him to love himself. A man never hates his own body, but he feeds it and looks after it. And that is the way Christ treats the church, because it is his body, and we are its living parts. For this reason, a man must leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one body. This mystery has many implications, but I am saying it applies to Christ and the church. To sum up, you two, each one of must love his wife as he loves himself. Let every wife respect her husband. You know there are paragraphs for children in slavery. So, in place of the anti-intellectual silliness, and never said once more, mere adolescent dreaming of, of Derrida, we actually have God himself investing himself reality of our love in our marriages, which is the place where our children are meant to be brought up. Is that glorious? Would, would that be, be enough to make you want to become a Christian? Right? To, to leave this postmodern nonsense, which is fundamentally corrosive to any human being, and, and to just gasp with awe at what God actually does for us way together with us in the actual institution of marriage. Glory to God. So, um, this would be a good time for some questions and discussion. I have how much time? Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Thank you so much. So, let me... Um, there's that contact information you can grab if you'd like to look. So thoughts or reflections? I don't mind any questions on the excursus, but probably we should pay attention to the marriage basically first to see what everyone has. I was just going to point out the irony that Jared I was married for almost 50 years before I'm going to be Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Is it uh, how do you handle that? Also, I think you'd have to get some writing from his wife to figure out. Children, when the guys are flitting in and out of this relationship for a 
however long they want to be the limit of the United States. So there is no place. That's right. I suppose I just I don't say just yes to that. But then <laughs> right? Then then what else do we have to say though? So I mean that's the basis by which I'm criticizing his new definition of that's what is Certainly, I'm not advocating letting Derrida have its way. Uh, nor would I give any credence to conversations, especially from professors who are encouraging people to think about marriage in Derridian terms rather than intelligently and sensibly and biblically. Uh, I'm not sure what else to say in response to that. I, I would agree. I don't want to give up the term marriage. I don't surrender it to the Supreme Court and the Oberlin Fellow. So, nor did the minority um, quote for that. No, you can't redefine how it works. But this does become a matter again of Lutheran and Christian education, isn't it? Because I'm just going to lean on this one more time. It is self-evident, right, that, that marriage should be something radically different from what they were about, and, and the Supreme Court majority. 
it's not it's not self-evident. People are not educated about it. It's not self-evident to us. I think that may have a weak reply rather than a question. I, I don't say give up at all. So we talk about it. And then with the disparate government. The government has no business doing this. By the way, that's an interference not just with the constitutional stuff, which has no warrant for changing the definition of marriage. Um, and not only did that happen, by the way, this should have been done legislatively, not that I like to say that today, but it should have been done legislatively, not judicially. And, and then, uh, to boot, it is a contradiction of the Declaration. Everybody should be able to see the right, rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is a frontal attack on the pursuit of happiness, at least in the Declaration. To what extent do the people who are moving closer in this direction in our, in our time, to what extent are they aware of the Euridian uh, origins or sympathies with this? Is it something that they realize comes from him, or is it just so much in their way of thinking that they're not even Thanks. I appreciate that we asked the question. I'm going to give a rather stark reply to your assumption that it's a cultural move. It is not a cultural move. It is an anti-cultural move. And I don't mean just anti-Western culture. I mean, on this definition that I offered you of shared moral judgments being handed from one generation to the next, this is anarchy. It's not shared moral judgments. It's a, a shared violent Marxist passion for violence. It's violence against people. Now, I, I would believe, probably, that, that most folks who might talk with who actually have anything to say about this, that they, I, I would imagine that what they're going to say is something about freedom from religion and so forth. But that's why I'm here. I, I believe I just gave you the case for why this is, this doesn't even get into that arena to talk about it, really. This is just so stupid and anti-intellectual, adolescent, ridiculous, dogmatic, that it, it doesn't even deserve serious discussion. But when the serious discussion does come, here's the question. Where does your philosophy get us? What, what does this do to us as human beings? And it's, it's like, it's like a, maybe your favorite science fiction novel or, or science fiction movie or something where the stuff at the beginning is intriguing and the way the plot's being carried out is somewhat thought-provoking for the better stuff. But the conclusion never gets anywhere. It, it never helps, and I say this as a this never helps you to get to any noble understanding of the human being or the human condition or, or what it means to be human beings in God's world, it seems. So this is anti-cultural. And then if I, if I didn't listen well to the last half of your question, I think the response is what I'm sketching out. So, uh, this also invites the question about how much preaching, how much of our preaching should be, let me say, educational in the sense of pointing out what's going on to the application of God's Word. We've had some discussions going on that. I think maybe the pastors would agree. We urgently need almost, you know, kind of stand down to, to just, not that we can afford a pause right now, but we've got to find some intentional way saying how does how does the reality of the loss of culture as kind of a, a convenient um, carrying out of the momentum you know, for people how does the loss of that 
nothing more than ideology. I believe I also said that ideology is mythology. Yeah. And the shorthand for that was me saying it's not intellectually coherent. Right. And it's questioning just ideology. You suggested that uh, at the outset that we all as Lutherans Know more about philosophy uh, in order to properly teach theology uh, in the old understanding of the handbook uh, theology. Uh, one thing that I advocated was really the, the separation of First Communion from Confirmation so that uh, children can be receiving the sacrament at an early age. But that's not dependent on you know, the, the content of uh, a more exhaustive understanding of catechism, which I think we need to go deeper and longer and not shorter you know, in order to uh, sort of get kids to the sacrament more quickly. So in, a, in that concept of a, a, a deeper, richer, fuller catechesis, which maybe would follow first communion, how would you that pastors should incorporate some philosophical teaching in their catechesis in like the high school uh, time so that they can deal with this stuff in a more prophylactic, defensive, apologetic way. Yeah, thanks. Did you hear our question? Okay, back there. Uh, I'm, I'm honestly going to sidestep the question about the age of communion, and I'm going to change that over my topic was for today and try to address that in the same vision. So let's just say that marriage is a sacrament. Okay. Worst things could happen. It actually isn't a, a matter of uh, scripture so much as a matter of definition of sacrament for us that keeps us from saying what our Catholic makers would say marriage is a sacrament. But let's let's say it's sacral or it's Sacrilegious? No, sorry. Sacred? I didn't want to say that. Uh, that it is sacred and God-instituted, which certainly is the case. Now, how much kind of cases should you have before you get married? I'm sorry you're not smiling. <laughs> how much kind of cases? More than we get. Hmm? More than we get. More than we get. Uh, well, I, well, but, 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 let me just finish this and then I'll come with you. So, why did you say that? I, I don't think that, you know, when a man and woman want to get married, they're concentrating on getting married in the, the physical, you know, we got to have a home together, we're putting it together, and they're not necessarily thinking of the philosophy and, the, and all the long term, yes, you know, all the, all the, yeah. and, and I don't know that most pastors 
individuals that are trying to get married to a hate pastor, we really need to have a philosophy on Philosophy of marriage? Yeah. Or, you know, what well, how about this, real quickly? Would, would you folks agree that you really should have a philosophy of marriage before you get married? Okay, now I, I don't know. I'd offer that just as a parallel way of talking about this. What certainly must happen is that in the course of the marriage, that is, as we are there has to be much more catechesis. There, there has to be much more teaching and imbibing and praying and use of scripture, yes? So I, I just don't know necessarily how to talk about which side of this, other than to agree. We need more instruction before marriage. Anybody want to say uh, four years of pastoral instruction? After engagement, before marriage? <laughs> not John, I'm not calling you again. So, you see what I'm saying though? So, you need to have the biblical realization and also the scriptural commitment to Christ the Logos in, in the doing of your marriage, as in the continual communion in the church. So, my concern would be if you want to describe it as philosophical, I don't want to, I don't want to take away from it. Biblical instruction, but I want to introduce the philosophical seriousness into this. So, you, you know, we say loosely in conversation, what's your philosophy of education? Right? And then you've got to give a serious answer. We should expect all of our teachers, I'm sure that our moms and our dads have a philosophy of education, right? Um, that should be articulated. And then that needs to be subject to continual learning, too. That's about all I have. Well, just that, uh, I, I like your answer. Um, I, I would not propose four years before the teachers could become married, but I would say, and I, I like your emphasis, that marriage is sacral, it is sacred, it God instituted, and it is something that God performs. So, uh, certainly we're not understanding what the Catholics do, but maybe we certainly should understand it more than the Protestants do. Uh, uh, as that God is including and God hindered. Uh, but I, I would say in response, you know, we enter into the mystery of baptism. We enter into the mystery of the Lord's Supper uh, uh, without fully understanding. Uh, and we partake of that. Uh, that is also true in marriage. Did you understand marriage? <laughs> no, that's exactly what? my thought. That's exactly what? my thought. Yeah, I just mean that's, it is a very ongoing thing. Absolutely. And it's, it's hard. Right. And, it, um, and it's joyful. And it's joyful. It's right. not. It's worth it. But it's so good. So then the catechesis is lifelong. Sure. Which actually is the philosophy thing. It's not just a pre-course or something. It's, it's this whole approach. Loving Christ the wisdom. Yeah. Uh, I am seriously over time. Let's take these last two hands that were up. I just I just wanted to say this based on your question that, that I would really uh, urge uh, all of the pastors reverence here that they uh, focus not on making sure that the children are catechized, but making sure that the parents of the children are catechizing their children. That's their, don't take our job from us. That's not your job, that's our job. Make us prepared to do that. And check, make sure we did our job. That's all.
practicing it all the time. But with me and my house, what am I going to serve? And how is that going to play itself out with the neighbor? If a neighbor looks at you and says, Man, there's something different about you. It might be because you're married. <laughs> in, in the context I work in, it's 90%. So what's different about, well, I'm going home with my wife tonight. I want it only. I thought, and bless you for it. I'm just going to continue to add into this, though. There, there is that, you know, apologetic mandate. We've always got to be ready to give an answer for that paraphrase these glorious marriages that we enjoy with the wives that the Lord has and spouses that the Lord has provided. So we have to be able to articulate that, and we need to articulate it in the light wholesale, fundamentally corrosive assault on marriage and everything else. And if I've, I've served to help to identify what's going on out there, that's not going to be the substance of your sermon, but I think it's going to help in pastor ministry and in giving uh, an answer for the reason the hope that we have in Christ that you were starting to articulate there too. That has to go along with the practice. And I think we're agreed on that. I, I do need to Thank you for the extra time. Thank you so much to all of you for the chance to be a part of the Academy Fellowship for Wittenberg this year. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.